with the oak that's going on. Mm -hmm. So if I start choking up, you'll know why. <clears throat> All right, so first things first, let's talk about your homework um, situation. I have had several of you approach me this this morning already, like one right after the other, privately going, oh my gosh, I couldn't get my homework done. What am I going to do? What is your suggestions, right? Okay, so here's the deal. One of the things I am noticing with this, this particular study is that Kay's focus is on us getting a big picture. Do you remember when we did Matthew and we were going through the book of Matthew and it was like, there was so much in there that we wanted to stop and really evaluate, but she wasn't doing that. She was, what she wanted you to do was just see the big concept of Jesus as king, right? That he came to be king, and in, and in what, what things occurred in his life that proved that or that, that confirmed that he was king. And so each segment, once you were done with one, two, or three chapters at a time, you could pull back and see that segment division. It showed him he was king in this way, right? And then you move to the next two or three chapters. And while you're in it, you're going, la, 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 la. I'm confused, right? And But finally, the light would come on. We'd come together and we'd go, okay, now we're in the next segment. Do you see what we're looking at? This is showing Jesus as king, and this is what proves it. And so by the time we were done with Matthew, we got the idea that Matthew, in a way, is kind of an overview for all of the Gospels. It kind of, sit, kind of sit, let, lays down a skeletal frame by which you can then, with each of the other Gospels, go in and add in additional details where each of the other Gospel synoptic accounts record more information or different information. And so they, then when you would go to do, um, say, Mark or Luke or then John, you can go back in and add on top of what you learned in Matthew. But Matthew gives you kind of the big picture, and that's what she wanted you to do. She stayed elevated way up here and we all talked about it when we were done saying wouldn't it be fun now that we've done the whole thing to go back now and go into every one of those chapters now that we see what those two or three chapters are trying to highlight that we could go in now and just look at all the details that were going on in there and really dig them out right would have been fun but of course it, the the curriculum is not developed in that way I wish it, it were, but it weren't. It weren't. It wasn't. Okay, so I'm because the kings and the prophets are a study that I've never done before. I'm I'm learning this as you guys are, kind of as we go along. I am kind of seeing that with this study, Kay is doing a, a similar thing. She's helping us to see the big picture about Israel, about their history. And in doing it uh, that way, and that being her focus, is just to kind of see a panoramic picture of his, the history of how Israel ended up where they are. Because one of the things we know is at the close of First, uh, first Kings is we see that um, this has been written while they're about halfway through the Babylonian captivity. So what does that kind of tell you about what might be one of the reasons the book, one of the purposes of the author is in writing this? Yep, to show them why they're there, right? If you kind of grab hold of that and back up on what we're looking at and 
try not so much to try to dig into all of the details in what we're looking at, but to see the bigger picture of it, then I think we're going to have less stress over, I can't get all this homework done, there's too much of it. Now, um, one student, I won't name her name, um, <laughs> Donna, uh, she asked if, you know, it, because of life at the moment for her, it, it's just too busy. How can I streamline this so that I can get through the week's homework but not feel just so defeated, basically, and like I'm not accomplishing what I need to accomplish. So here's my suggestion to her, and I'm offering it to any one of you, but it's not an excuse to slack off, okay? But it might be beneficial, and it might be just beneficial on certain weeks, where on some weeks you can do it all, but on other weeks you can't. So here's my, here was my suggestion. The most important thing that you can do in this particular homework is get through the general observations in each of the chapters she assigns to us. Go through, like this week in 1 Kings and in the Second Chronicles, those chapters which she assigned, do your observation worksheet, meaning mark your key words and, and then figure out where your paragraph divisions are and, and uh, title your paragraphs. Okay, why? Because that's going to give you the flow of thought which in this case is the flow of events. Because when you're doing a historical book, you're looking at people, places, and events primarily, right? And what we're looking at is the history of Israel and where they came from and how they got where they are, which at this time is in Babylonian captivity. So you're, you're trying to see the bigger picture of, okay, what kind of things are being brought out for us in each of these chapters that we're looking at that's giving us indications and clues as to why Israel is where they are at, the, at this point in history in their captivity. Um, I think last week we did a pretty good job of actually backing up and looking at that. Do, would you say so? Because we went back and we looked to say, okay, so, you know, where are they? Why are they there? What did they already know, right? And in knowing what they, they knew, when we see the record given to us and certain things are, are pointed out to us, like certain kings and alliances and certain marriages and certain amounts of accumulation of, of silver and gold and horses and going back to Egypt to, to get them and so forth, all of a sudden when you put that through that filter of saying, wait a minute, God had already given them laws on these things. They are supposed to know these things, and they do, by the way. If you didn't pick up on... The prayer this week that of Solomon's prayer, how much did he know about the law? Oh, my goodness. The man knew a lot, right? And this is, think about it. If you're standing up to give a prayer, it's not like you've written it, maybe, but probably not to, in his day. You don't write it down and just list it off and read it so that you remember these things. These are things he was thinking of as he was praying to God that God was bringing to his mind as he prayed, right? So that... He had a lot of stored knowledge about the law. And so he wanted us to know the things that he knew. And then he was petitioning God concerning those things. And we're going to get into the discussion on that just a little bit later. But so for you, for your homework, if all you have time to do is a small amount of it, I had suggested that you read through your instructions for each day. 
use a yellow highlighted marker and so that you want to know what all the instructions are. You do want to know what kind of things she's asking you to look for, right? You can yellow highlight those places where she gives you instructions about uh, your observation worksheets that are to be done each week. Get those observation worksheets marked and then do your paragraphs. Just determine where one paragraph begins and ends and just kind of title that progressively and how does that relate to your title, your theme for that particular chapter. If you do that much and that much alone, you will be prepared to talk in class, to have a conversation about things. Then if you get all that done, you have time, then you can say to yourself, because you've read the instruction, you go, ooh, you know what, that, that instruction about the glory of God, I wanted to know more about that. Or that instruction about the feast, I wanted to know more about that. So then you can pick the thing that you want to go back to and, and focus your time for more in-depth depth study on. You can actually even take it farther than she does in her work. For instance, the feast one, she really only gave us one thing to go back to, and that was chart that that's in the back of your, in your appendix area, right? She wanted you to match up time factors so that you could figure out which feast it was. Simple, took you know, one minute to look at that, but it didn't totally solve all the questions about the timing on that if, if you weren't totally under, understanding the way that he's uh, recording this. We're gonna clarify that in, in our class discussion this morning, but that would have been another example of a thing where, oh, that's the thing that I don't get, and it's bugging me, so I'll go study that one. Okay, so that's going to, I'm, what I'm trying to do is lift a little bit of the burden off you and give you an option of another way to do your work. If, unless you're like me, where I got to go through every single point <laughs> and do it all, which I need to because I don't know which direction you guys are going to go with your questions. But... Um, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. I think this particular study, to me, it looks like what they're really wanting you to focus in on is the major events and kind of the progression. What were some of the major events that occurred, the things that occurred, okay? And now that we know context matters to filter that through as far as what Israel was supposed to know concerning God's law, then when you're reading, you can also be kind of keeping your antenna up to pick up on things where you're going, oh, wait a minute, I don't think they're supposed to be doing that. I don't think they were supposed to do that, right? And if so, make, just use a little marker of some kind or a pencil and pencil on the side and say, mm, this is questionable or this might be a sin or I don't think they're, or they are not supposed to be doing this. I mean, however you want to do it on your observation worksheet. But to note the things that are told to you that you know are obviously wrongs on the part of either Solomon or Israel as a nation, then that will help you to pick up on this author who's writing from back here in history or further down in history, I should say, with, with they're in Babylonian time, they're halfway through the Babylonian captivity, he's writing to give them a perspective as what got them in their captivity. And now you can, you can be reading and going, ah, here's a problem, they sinned, oh, that's why they're in captivity, and that's why this author wrote this in the, in the text. Okay, so now your, your homework, I've just reduced it about half. There's a lot of things that, for instance, Kay asked us to do, like word studies on prayer and supplication. Well, the vast majority of you in here have done that many times. That's not new information. It's probably not super needful. 
we also looked at the glory of God, right? How, how he entered into the tabernacle in the days of the tabernacle. How Jesus then came, he being the, the glory of God incarnate in physical form. And how if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. We went to the end of days, to, to, into Revelation, and we looked at what's going to happen at the end of times concerning the glory of God. So we got a chance to look at different different qualities concerning that subject. But for many of us, that's not new information, right? If it is for you, that would be something you would want to go back and look at. But otherwise, you could just skip it. I'm giving you permission to do that, and I sure as hope nobody records this and sends it to precept <laughs> because they're going to have a heart attack. But I, do, here's, here's, I really feel like the homework assignments that we're being given need to be two weeks long, each one of them. And we're do, and it, and it's. I don't want anyone to get so discouraged that they just say, "Well, this is not for me. I'm. It's too hard," you know, because it really is not too hard. It's just there's not enough hours in a in a week. I put in a lot of hours this week on this, and I kept telling myself I'd get five minutes to go sew, but it never happened. <laughs> but you know, because you got to mop floors too, <laughs> right? So. Okay, so that is my instructions, uh, my tip for the day on in doing inductive Bible studies for, for this particular uh, curriculum. Okay, the, are you talking about the numbers? Yeah. The numbers are bolded, yes. That is... that. Okay, y'all listen up now. She's asking a question, and some of you may not know this. She's asking, why are some of the numbers in your observation worksheet, why are some of the numbers bolded? And my answer would be to you, it's precept suggestion for a paragraph division. So it's a little hint. It can, you can just flat out use it and, and not even consider anything else, or you can do like I do and just violate all the rules and <laughs> do your own thing. As long as it makes sense to you, right? You have to be able to justify in your mind where you cut it off and say, I think they're talking about this here, and now I see a break here, and I see... Th but I, I do use her suggestions as a guide. I kind of look at it to see how, where do they stop and why do I think they stop there. Most of the time, they're correct. Um, and a lot of your indicators of when a paragraph begins and ends, it's, it, you look at two things to find paragraphs. You look, first, if you've marked your observation worksheet with your keywords, you're going to see keywords in each paragraph that are distinctive to each, each paragraph. You know, maybe it starts talking about the glory, uh, uh, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and then the next one would be, and then we, then we, we uh, sacrificed to the Lord, so that's the major subject. And then the next one is, and then we we brought the ark into the covenant, or the ark of the covenant into the temple. And so you'll see that. So you look for the major subjects, right? Um, so keywords and major subjects, the way that you've marked it, should help give you some indicator. Another indicator would be the words. Uh, however, therefore, for this reason, and then, okay? Are y'all following me on that? So that there are also grammatical phrases that sometimes will give you an indication that they're starting another paragraph, okay? So for this reason, and then he gives you a, a conclusion statement, and in that conclusion statement, another subject comes up, and you can see that it's 
it can be t a title as a paragraph all by itself. Okay, is that helpful? Everyone kind of follows me on that? Okay, I know it's easier said than done. <laughs> it takes time because here's the, here's the wonderful thing about precept. The, the process of inductive Bible study is that it slows you down and it makes you not just quickly read through and fill in a blank and then read and then fill in a blank. We don't want you doing that. We want you analyzing what you're looking at. Read it and then kind of in your mind, Ask those questions, who, what, why, where, when, and how. Because when you do that, then you're, you're drawing it out to a place where you can say, well, I see, this is why they're, they're mentioning this. And, oh, gee, all these other little things, they're not that important. I mean, they're mentioned and they're explained, but they're secondary to it. Now, if you were ever doing a subject study and you dropped in, that one point might be important to you in that major subject, right? Like the subject of covenant. You might drop into First Kings or Second Chronicles or, or, or any of those books and look for information about the subject of covenant making and be able to pull a point out. But maybe that subject of covenant is mentioned once in one verse in a paragraph, but that's not the major thing. It's something else. Okay? So you just have to analyze it. The whole point is to is to draw it in and, and kind of mull it around. It's called meditating upon God's word. What God wants you to do is meditate on his word so that you are going to learn what it is that he needs you to see, and you're going to be able to evaluate it in light of the author's major subject for that chapter and see what is he trying to tell me in this paragraph about that major subject that he has presented, right? In... Uh, historical books, it's people, places, and events that are the major things. So that's all you're really looking for, people's places and events, and you want to title your chapter, and you want to get your paragraphs, okay? And if you do that much, then you've done a real good job for the week, mm -hmm. all right? And the, everything else, you can pick and choose how much of it you're going to dive into, but that might relieve you of some of the strain of, of hours of work on this, okay? It's not supposed to be more than five, but I find that's a laughing matter. <laughs> five hours is not even touching the tip of the iceberg for me. But anyway, okay, so, that, but that's because I'm slow. I am a slow processor. I do not, you know, some people can drop into something and just pick up on things and whip through. Not me, man. I just, it takes me, my husband can read something and go, oh, that's such and such. I'm going, Ugh. I just spent eight hours up there before I got to that conclusion. How did you do that? It's just amazing. But God lets our minds work in different ways and for different reasons. And I'm, I'm sure that one of the reasons God chose me to lead this kind of study is because if I can do it, anyone can. And so I'm the testimony that, yes, you can do it also. Oh, you're welcome, Lee. You're welcome, Lise. No more guilt. I want everyone to be freed up to. And I also, I really truly believe this with all my heart. This is supposed to be a delight to us. We're supposed to be in here going, oh, isn't this interesting? Wow, look at what they did. Look at how God responded. Look who our God is. How does this relate to me today? Do I do these things? Am I being disobedient or am I being disobedient? I mean, it's supposed to take us to a place of real worship and real um, conversation with God, right? To our own prayers with him. 
And that's the, the end goal in all this, is to grow in our faith and in our walk with him. So if you are looking at your homework as, oh my gosh, it's so much work and I'm never going to get it all done, then, then we've lost our focus, right? So I want you to f- be freed up to enjoy the time that you're in the word of God, okay? All right, now with that said, we've got to get through all this today. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> I know. So we're doing good, though. We're fine. I saw you looking at the clock, Lois. I'm, I'm with you, girl. Okay, now, she's like, oh, my gosh, hurry up. <laughs> she's my good. She is such a blessing. And Lois, I, gotta t- I just have to say again, you're such a blessing to me and to everyone here. You really do keep us organized. Yeah. We are thankful for someone who's got their heads together all the time. Okay. All right, so here's what I'm going to do today because we have we had tons and tons. We had four chapters we looked at. We are going to look at one. We are going to look at 1 Kings 8. We are going to do a title for it, and we're going to do our paragraphs on it. Then what I hope to do afterwards is show you a little trick that God revealed to me. I love it when the Holy Spirit does this. It was like a aha moment. I did um, a, a thing called an at-a-glance parallel chart. So I'm going to show you what what happened when I decided, because I was having trouble with two sheets of paper and trying to keep things together, and they're such a mess. So I went to my computer, as I usually do, and I formed an, uh, an observation at a glance chart, just like they have us do for every book we do. But I put both uh, Kings and Chronicles on one piece of paper, side by side. And in the doing of that, then, I began to say, well, which chapters line up with one another? And once I did that, I came up with the coolest uh, way to be able to, at a glance, look and say which chapters match with which, which book chapters match with the other book chapters, and to be, be able to do it really quickly. And what's going to be awesome for us, if you choose to do this for yourself, um, is you'll be able to put this in, in somewhere in your Old Testament section or in the back of your Bible to pull out later. Uh, but whenever you're in a study with any other kind of conversation in any other Bible study or if your pastor is preaching, you'll be able to pull this out and go, oh, this is First uh, Kings 2, 3, and 4, and it matches uh, Chronicles 2. And you'll be able to see both of them right together and be able to see which ones you're to go look at. So it's going to be it's going to be like your New Testament uh, um, gospel synoptics. And you've had, you guys know there's even books on those, right? That you can buy little books that show you the synopsis and it shows you where chapter by chapter, verse by verse lined up. Did any of you happen to do that when your homework was assigned to you to look at two things and compare them? Did you actually put, print them out and lay them side by side? I want to show you what I did so that you understand what I'm talking about. Because I've done this. We did this one. We were doing um, the book of Revelation. Do you remember? And we took that one chapter. And we took each of the synoptic observations on the one subject, which was at the time of the abomination of desolation, right? In Matthew 24, I think it was, right? Am I getting it right? I'm looking at Susan because I know she did. Anyway, um, this is what I did. For instance, one of the things where we did a synoptic 
comparison, or she asked us to do a synoptic comparison. She didn't call it that, but that is what it is. So she said, look at 1 Kings 8, 54 to 66, and compare it to 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 10. So what I did is I did a cut and paste from my computer onto my Word document, and I laid them side by side. And then she said, tell me what was mentioned in one that wasn't mentioned in the other. So I highlighted the two sections that were different so that in, in this account, this pink is not in there. In this account, this green is not in it. And it helped me. So all I did was a watermark on, on the section that's not in one or the other. And now I can compare. And then what I did is I key marked my similar words. Can you see where the purple is and the purple? Matches up. See the orange and the orange? They match up. So those are the same subjects going on. Get down here to the red and the red and the green and the green. So that by marking them that way, I can see where they're matching up with one another. It is a synoptic observation of that event. So what she had us look at, did you have trouble when she said just go in there and look at it and tell me what, what's missing or what's different? I had a hard time. I couldn't do it until I did this. I w that's what prompted me to do it this way was because I was having trouble. So I'm just showing you what I did to solve the problem because it'll probably come up again in homework. And now you'll have an idea how you might be able to better observe that text side by side and try to come to the conclusion that she's wanting you to see. And that is either what's missing or what's been added, right, in each of those synoptical uh, uh, references. Okay. We did a lot. We did, we're covering a lot of little, uh, you know, technical things on how to do your homework today. But I do think that, you know, you learn as you go along. And it's better for me to bring things up and show you little by little the things that I'm doing and what I've done. It's going to help you to be able to say, oh, I want to try that. that. I think that might actually help me. Um, or I didn't think to do that. I should have, <laughs> right? Okay. All right. So let's start. Before we go into the parallel uh, at a glance chart, let's start by just laying down what we know about 1 Kings 8, and we're going to try to bring in information from each of the other uh, observation worksheets that you did in Chronicles, okay? All right, let's start with 1 Kings 8. So open your observation worksheets. Hold on, let me get mine out also. 1 Kings 8. Okay, and did you notice that she had it split up this week? That you did part of 1 Kings on day two, and then part of it on day three, and then part of the rest of it on day five, and in between you were doing the Chronicles observations, right? Um, that was very hard for me to do it that way. I could not stay, so I ended up doing all of uh, 1 Kings 8 in one sitting, and I did the same thing with each of the others. I, I know that she broke them up, but I didn't break them up. I just did the whole thing like I normally would do. It's not against the law. <laughs> it's okay if your brain thinks that way better. So do whatever is good for your thinking because you're the one that needs to grab hold of the information that's in there. For me, I needed the full flow and I needed to get my title and every paragraph in line so I could see the flow of thought, what was transi uh, transitioning from one point to another point so that I could see the, the bigger picture of the whole thing. Then when I went into the Chronicles and did my observations, I was noticing right away, oh, this matches this, this matches this. <laughs> but if you don't do the whole thing, you wouldn't have been able to have seen it. 
She broke it up, which for new students, to me, you may have lost what, what was going on, okay? So we're going to fix it this morning by doing it all in one flow of thought and then just plugging in the other uh, Chronicles records, okay? All right, let's start with talking about on the whole in 1 Kings 8. What did you see that you thought was the major point to everything that was talked about in 1 Kings 8? What was the most major event here? The ark is brought in. And once the ark was brought in, which is one of the articles of the temple, correct? Then what occurred? The cloud filled the temple. The glory of God filled his temple. Okay, so the end result of the various things that are laid out for us in, in verses 1 to 4 what ha, what had Israel done what was going on in those first four verses let's start right here giving our paragraphs in 1 to 4 what did Israel do they all gathered so all Israel had assembled right and where had they assembled at Jerusalem right and where what were the and it says they went before something what was it Well, but yeah, but what what was present in verse three, for instance, and also in verse one, and also in verse four, the ark of the covenant was there. So it seems like they were gathering for the purpose of the ark, which is what Lois brought up. The ark was being brought in, and that seemed to be a significant uh, point to that was going to have a significant result, right? So they, they, they gather at the temple. So we're going to put on here, then all Israel gathers or assembles. You could say at Jerusalem and before the ark, right? I have at Jerusalem in, the, in my title as well, just because um, I think it's significant when you make some comparisons with with uh, what is said in the other Chronicles records. Yes? No, they don't. Very interesting question. Now, is it significant to the whole of this? No, but it's one of those points where for, for, for you, it's like, huh, that's weird. Why didn't they bring that up again? So does anybody have a, a thought on that? Why does it just kind of get mentioned in passing and then dropped? They don't need it. It was it was now had now become obsolete, which is very interesting. Because do you remember in Hebrews, when we studied Hebrews, that something would become obsolete when something else came? What was it? The holy of holies, right? When the temple was rent in two and the the inner sanctuary was disclosed, and now it it became obsolete, and the old covenant became obsolete. So again, what we're seeing is a demonstration of that, that thing which is really clearly laid out in, in Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 where it shows the old covenant itself becoming obsolete. But in the account here with the, the Ark of the Covenant coming in and the tabernacle being brought in, what we're seeing is the tabernacle became obsolete. So it's a conclusion you have to draw. It's not a statement ever made. It's just... Uh, uh, an 
what's one of those obvious conclusions is obviously it was just no longer needed. Now, what might be significant in this would be who was it that um, determined that they would be building this temple? God himself. As a matter of fact, we looked at a cross-reference, and I don't remember where it was. It must have been in Samuel somewhere. But where God indicated to David that he would not be allowed to build the temple, but that his son would, right? And, he's, and one of the things that was interesting, it was this week's homework. He said to him, when did I ever require or ask of you for a house? right? Did I require it of, of the prophets whenever I came to Israel and met with them and spoke with them and inspired them to speak to you? Did I ever come to you and say, David, do this for me? And the answer is no. Yet he said, David, I will. I, it was good. Remember, you did a list on day five about the heart. What did you learn about the heart when you looked at the heart uh, in, on day five? That concerning uh, David's desire in his heart to want to build it, what did God say? It was a good thing. So it's kind of, Carol, one of those subjects that you could spend quite a bit of time on. It would be considered a small, mini, topical subject study. It may take you four or five hours of rummaging through, cross-referencing, the Holy Spirit illuminating remembrance for you of other things we've already looked at, and you drawing together a list that says, concerning the tent of meeting, it was, at first it was at Gibeon, then, then we saw there was a second one built by David's. That's interesting. The fact that there had been a second one built, a smaller tent of some kind that David did to house the Ark of the Covenant. So what does that tell you about the tent itself? It's not that it's it's not that the tent is like the all in all in this picture. The tent served a purpose, right? And when the tent the, the temporary tent of meeting was no longer needed because there was a permanent fixture called the temple, then what happens to the tent of meeting? It just goes by the wayside. They put it in storage. <laughs> Or they repurposed it because they like to, you know, <laughs> they're conservative on, what do you call that? Um, yeah, they're recycles. They're recycling. Right, exactly. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. The ten, isn't that an amazing thought, too, that God preserved it for all those years? And you wonder how many times they, had, they went back in and did repair work and maybe even replace pieces of it. They don't tell us this, but there's the potential is there that all that happened. It's an interesting subject, Carol. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> but I hope that answered your question. It's just, it is one of those things where you would have to analyze in your mind what was the tent, what was its purpose, why was it no longer, apparently no longer needed, and why was it not even mentioned? Well, the conclusion would be if it was important, would God have mentioned it? Yes, the fact that he doesn't mention it and doesn't really give us any further details on it tells us that it simply became obsolete because the permanent fixture was now in place, which God had sanctioned. So, okay, hopefully that answers that question. I hope we're not doing this all day. <laughs> okay, wonderful. For, uh, sorry, but I love those questions. You know I do. I think they're, they're fun and they are uh, challenging to your mind to 
help you reason things through to say, you know, why and where and how and, you know, just to kind of ponder it all. Okay, so we, we look at uh, Israel in verses 1 to 4 that they have all assembled at Jerusalem before the ark. They had brought the ark of the Lord up to the tent of meeting and all, and all the utensils that were with it, right? So then what happens in verses uh, 5 to 9? Okay, 5 to 9, the ark is taken into the inner sanctuary. Ark was taken into the holy place or the inner sanctuary, however you want to say it, in the, in the temple, right? Now, um, the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Remember last week in Chronicles chapter 7, we looked at the details of that cherubim, right? Do you remember how massive these these uh, articles were that Solomon built, how beautiful they were. Yeah, okay, so th he's describing here that the ark is taken in into that inner room and placed there before the inner sanctuary. Um, and it says there was nothing in the ark except what? Two tablets. Now, how does this compare? Now, this was one, again, one little tiny mini thing. And if you had not had time to do it, it could be it could be skipped. It's not super duper important. But for some people, they're like, well, whoa, wait, wait, wait. What's in that Ark of the Covenant? What's, what's in there when it gets brought into Solomon's temple? Um, the intersection. There was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made the covenant with the sons of Israel. But what happened to the manna and the budding rod of Aaron? Because we know those were in, because we cross-referenced and went back to the original account with Moses. What happened to them? Okay, now, Carol, explain it to me. What happened to They're probably in the tent that went into, that went, maybe, maybe. Or, or and an or well probably not because it says the only thing that was in there was the two tablets so I would say no maybe maybe the Philistines took them out and kept them possibly because while they were in their hands the the scripture doesn't record it however and it doesn't really tell us right so what does that tell us about the presence of a rod that budded and the presence of manna. It's not as important as the covenant itself. They were symbolic at the time that were meaningful for those people in their moment. But now they've lost their, their necessity of, of uh, focus for Israel as a nation. God has now honed it down to one thing, the covenant. I don't want you to focus on the bud the budding rod. I don't want you to focus on the manna. Those had points, however, spiritual truths that were really important and that we can still learn from, but they're recorded in written record. We don't need them in the ark. What he wanted them to see when they went into this situation was that inside the ark of the covenant for them was simply the, the covenant, the stone tablets. Okay? All right? So now... We've got the ark was taken into the holy place, 5 to 9. Now, 10 to 13 is the next one. 
Well, 11, 12, and 13, what is your major key word? The cloud and the glory, right? And the word filled, the house might be in, you could have even marked that one if you, I didn't, but you could have. Um, filled the house. So I put the house and I showed a kind of glory over it. So when you kind of accumulate all that, just by, um, Juanita, when you look at the text, you should be able to see on your observation worksheet, a cloud, a cloud, a cloud, a cloud. And what does that tell you? That paragraph's major subject is what? About that cloud. All right, which is the Shekinah glory. We looked at some information about the Shekinah glory, so she had us also go back and look at that. For those of you who have studied the Shekinah glory on multitudes of occasions, it would not have been essential for you to go back and look at all these things. However, it was in the homework, and I know this week you all did all your homework because you were still trying to follow the rules, right? Now, next week you, you're going to get a pass on some of it, or the next week we meet, I should say. Next week we're not here because we're out for spring break. But the next week we come to meet, you're going to have a free pass on some of these subjects. But who looked at the Shekinah glory? Okay, tell me what, what your insights are about the Shekinah glory. Wow. Okay, now I liked that particular verse because the part where it says that you shall worship in the place which I shall choose is shown to you in that particular statement where it says the cl when the cloud would rise up and would move, then what would Israel do? They would move with it. So what does that tell you about when the, when the Shekinah glory would stop, or the cloud, or the mist, or the fire, if it was at night, there was a fire. When it stopped, then what would Israel do? They would stop and camp. And then they had sanctioned rites by God's authority that that was the place that they were to worship, because that's where the tent would be pitched. So anywhere that tent was, was the approved place by God, the appointed place by God to worship him. Isn't that a cool little insight? Helpful, I think, for those who don't understand the idea that you can only worship in the place which God shall appoint. Okay? All right, so the Shekinah glory. So in this case, what do we learn about the Shekinah glory in 10 to 13? The glory of the Lord does what? Okay. The glory of the Lord filled the house. Or you can say temple if that's better for your thinking. Okay? All right. So now on day five, we looked at that. One of the things that I thought was also interesting is on page, I think it was 54 in your homework, she had us go and look at this Shekinah glory and talk and take it to the New Testament understanding about the glory of God. And what did you learn when you looked at uh, that? In, in all the contrasts or the, all the uh, cross-references. I'm trying to find my pages here, too. I hope you... Page 54. Mm-hmm. Okay. That... What, what we're looking for, then, is the fact that the Shekinah glory being um, a... a I hate to use the word article because that's not really the correct way to say that, but it's a, 
it's a quality of the old tabernacle and it's a quality of the old temple, correct? But does it pertain to you and I today? Absolutely. And this, I think, for somebody who's new in the Word of God, this would be, you know, possibly a, a point that needs to be brought forward to them that they need to understand. The Shekinah glory of the Old Testament is the, the same Shekinah glory of the New Testament that we uh, are privileged to have um, abiding in us, right? Because is that not what it said to us then? What, what did it say in John 14? I live in you, and I in you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And then in 23, he says, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Or in other translations, in him. Uh huh. <coughs> Yes, very good. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Isn't that interesting? That is so love. What a lovely insight that is too. To now know that it's been magnified in it in it the glory of it that before its glory was contained in one location on planet earth amongst a single people group but now where does it abide where does the glory of God abide in every single believer his spirit is in you his glory is in you now what does that tell you then um, about your faith walk in the world today if you are the one who is walking the streets of Austin, Texas, or in the, the street the, around your neighborhood, in your homes, in your workplaces, what is it that should be foremost in, in your thoughts about the way that you behave, the things you engage in, the things you do, the TV programs you watch, the people you, and the conversations you have with other people? Consider all these things and think about... For, for us, as we're looking at the Old Testament record of the Shekinah glory entering into the temple, was that a profound and moment, momentous, momentous occasion or, or event? It was. It seems like in 1 Kings 8 that that seems to be the most significant point that's going on here. All these other things led up to that, that uh, glory filling the temple. The, everything else they did was for the purpose that the, that the Shekinah glory would be recorded as having entered into the temple and having, therefore, God's presence with them and among them, right? Because the whole point to them building the temple was for God to do what? Dwell, Dwell with them. Just as he did in the tabernacle days as they were traveling, he dwelt with them in their midst. And when we looked at Revelation, then what did Revelation tell us? That one day God will dwell with man in that new eternal new heaven and new earth. That as a matter of fact, that Shekinah glory will be in our presence. And what will we have no more need for? No sun or moon or stars. Because God will be what? He'll be our light. And he will illuminate his city. And he'll be our lamp. Isn't that amazing? 
Yes. Yes. Right. Face to face. Isn't that amazing? I think it's in Peter where it says, what we see now in a dim mirror, then we shall see face to face. Is that Peter? Yeah. Very good, Glenn. Nice. Okay. So again, this is one of those spiritual truths for many of us. We're going, I knew that. Uh, that's all information I knew. But there are people who, that don't have all those pieces put together. They haven't connected the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament and said, oh my gosh, that same Shekinah glory now in this new covenant. They had it in the old covenant and they, and they visually saw it in the, pre, in the presence of their, t- of their tabernacle and later in the presence of their temple. But now we, we have that same Shekinah glory in this new covenant because the old covenant is now obsolete. Has the Holy Spirit, has the Shekinah glory become obsolete? The answer is no. Let me shake my head harder. No, no. The Shekinah glory, who is the eternal God, the ever-present, all-consuming all, um, God that he is, he was present in that day and he is still present today. He was present in the old covenant. He is present present in the new covenant. And his glory now dwells in us. And what does that make you and I? The temple of God. That's, that's an amazing. I thought about that last night. And I really, I just, I had a little tear or two thinking, wow, God, that you would consider me worthy of being your temple. That makes me feel really responsible to you know, walk in a manner that's worthy and in a way that would please him. And it makes me feel very, very humbled that, that he would do that for us. That's an amazing thing. All right, so the glory of the Lord filled the house. So what we are seeing now, and I just want to remind you, remember, everything that God gave Israel, according to Romans, is the, the, the law had a purpose. And the purpose of it was to do what? to lead men to Christ. And in that picture then of all the different articles and of all of the different qualities, the feasts, the, the, the processes that the, the, the priests went through, everything had a significant truth that would teach you something about entering into relationship with God and, and who God is, right? And how we're to relate to him. Who, who is God, who is man, and who is man in relationship to God. Everything is taught to us through these things. So as we're looking at this as an Old Testament record, we can start to already in our minds say, you know what, isn't this interesting how they assembled before the ark in such holiness. And, and the ark was taken so carefully and so um, ceremonially into its position and place with great reverence and respect. And it was done properly, by the way. Did you notice who took it in there? Only the ones qualified to do so. Yeah, so we see that this great reverential act shows us something about our relationship with God. How, how should you and I treat the holy 
glory that God has given to you and I, which now tabernacles within us. And how should we approach God when we go to him in prayer, even? Think of what Solomon did, how he approached him in prayer. Okay, so the, do you, are you seeing application, application, application? It's just amazing. Okay, so the ark. So that is, on the whole, I kind of gave a title to these first three uh, um, paragraphs as the glory of the Lord fills the temple. I just kind of did it there. And then I started the next segment with that Solomon dedicates the temple. And he starts it with just a very simple statement in 14 to 21. And in there, there's a significant statement where Solomon is really acknowledging who God is and at least one particular attribute about his God. Did anybody pick up on that? Tell me what do you see in 14 to 21. How did you title this? All right, so the Lord has fulfilled his word. So what are you seeing Solomon recognize about God in this? That God is faithful and he determines sovereignty. So you see his sovereignty over his word, and you see his faithfulness to his word. Wow, that's powerful stuff right there. You could spend days just pondering on the fact that God is faithful to his word and that he's sovereign over his word. So what does that tell you and I as Christians today when you think about the things that God has promised yet to come? He will do it. And you know what? There are so many naysayers in our world today. They want you to not believe God's word is true. Um, we just saw a, a video uh, called, Is the Bible History? We, did, how many of you guys got to go see that movie? Or is Genesis history? That's what it was. Is Genesis history? And in that, what we saw were, uh, you know, them trying to counter with very good, strong apologetics the fact that God's word absolutely is history. And that there is absolutely no reason to doubt that what God lit wrote, he literally meant. That it was a literal historical record. It wasn't imaginary. It wasn't fictitious. It wasn't an allegory. It wasn't days and days and years and years. When he said one day there is morning and there is evening, that's what he meant. It was a 24-hour day. And I know that a lot of people do not want to accept that. And it is a huge stumbling stone because when you will not accept that God wrote a record, which is what we're looking at here, by the way, the, the New Testament is written according to literary styles. And we are looking right now at a historical record. What is Genesis? It's a historical record. People want to, though, take chapters 1 and 2 and make it not historical, make it something else, allegory or, or poetry or imagery or something like that. But then what do you do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which are in the same book written by the same author? Oh, fairy tale. Yeah, if, if, if in fact chapters 1 and 2 are allegory, then the whole book has to be allegory. So what have you just wiped out out of God's word? The entire gospel message, everything that's referred back to in every other place in the Bible, get, at some point or another, it gets be referred back to the Genesis account. 
So is Genesis history is such a fundamental question. We are looking at history in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We must look at these things as literal. We must look at these things as factual. And if, in fact, they're literal and they're factual, God has recorded them for our learning, right, for, to instruct us, um, then what we need to say is then what's in here that's so important that years later, in their Babylonian captivity, a, a certain person had been raised up by God to spend hours digging through the archives and the chronicles of the kings and recording a record that we're looking at. This is, is powerful to think on. God directed some man's heart back then to write this out for you and I so that we could learn something from what we're looking at here, that we would draw a truth out that will hopefully prevent us from falling in the same way that they fell and ended up in their captivity. Right? So what we see here at this point is that the glory of the Lord had filled the temple in these first few verses, but what we also see in here is we see the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. That God did exactly what he said he would do. He determined the place at Jerusalem. He determined that the house would be built, and he gave his instructions to David about it, right? And David then gave those instructions to Solomon, and Solomon followed them to a point, right? With the exception of some of his ab-living on how he got the supplies. Okay, now let's go, let's go to the next little section here. In 14 to 21 then, we see that God did what then? He kept his promise. So the Lord fulfilled his promise to who? The Lord fulfilled his promise to David. Now, tell me, you guys, so far, are, are we hitting paragraphs and titles about the same that you did on yours? I just want you to kind of evaluate the homework that you've been doing and how close you got to hitting in there. But I'm also going to tell you this. My titles are not necessarily etched in stone, and they're not the only way that you can title things, as long as we're close. You want to get the quality of what's going on in there, not necessarily word for word how I phrased it. So you have freedom to make your titles the way you want them. They do not have to be my titles, but they have to encompass the message of my titles because you want to hit on the major subjects of each of these paragraphs, okay? All right, 14 to 21, the, that he did this. And uh, very interesting in there, it says, David's son has built a house for the Lord, was the quote that he gave in there. And I love that, that again, he points back then at this point to a covenant. Do you remember what covenant that is? Yes, and that, and, that through, and that when God told him through Nathan, now I've got Nathan in the right place, right? When God told, I had it wrong last week, I know. Um, Nate, when God spoke through Nathan to David and he told him, no, you're not going to build it for me. Do you remember why? Too much blood on his hands. He was a man of war, and that's what he was identified as, as a conquering king, as he conquered the land and settled the people. But that he would raise up for him, after him, a son. And what would the son be known as? A man of peace. In his reign years, while he was building the temple and ruling the people, 
for the most part, there was peace in the land. And so Solomon was the one. And so in this case where the Lord fulfilled his promise to David, he raised up a son who would be a man in time of peace, and he would build that house. Again, the Lord was faithful and fulfilled his word. Okay, now let's go to 22 to 26. Now, we see something begin right here after he dedicates the temple there, right? This is simply a dedication statement that the Lord has fulfilled his promise to David. What begins in 22 and carries through 53? Solomon's prayer. So what do you see with Solomon? How does God, he approach God in those first few verses? Yes. I love that. So the first thing he does is praise God. He acknowledges who God is and praises him. What does he then follow in the next few uh, paragraphs? How does he follow in the next few paragraphs? What starts? Okay. He positions himself under the authority of God and recognizes, as he has actually already done on more occasions than just this one, but he acknowledges that he's really only there because of what God had promised to his father David, right? So he puts himself in a correct position with God in, in, in humility, which is amazing to see him do here, all right? And then he begins in verse 27 to the end of this with what? Prayers and supplications. So we did word studies on prayer and supplication, um, and, and in that then, did any of you begin to evaluate a bigger picture, this is an analytical evaluation of his prayer. Did anything come to your mind concerning prayer that you saw him exhibiting in his prayers that you could model for yourself? Any kind of a pattern that you could model or any kind of qualities in his prayers that you see that are familiar to you? How many of you guys have done prayer studies? Have you ever heard the, the acts of prayers? And it's an acronym, A-C-T-S. Have you ever heard of it? What does it stand for? A is for C, T, Thanksgiving, S, supplication. Did we see him doing adoration, Thanksgiving, um, the, confession, and uh, supplication? What of yeah, get them. I can only do it when I see it written on the board in my mind. I thought that was really interesting that we could actually do that. As you go through this prayer, you can see him actually exercising each of these different qualities of prayer, uh, almost in the right order even. He starts with the adoration, right? Okay, so 22 to 26, then we're going to see him. First and foremost, he's, he acknowledges, right? He acknowledges... Um, well, actually, it's not the word acknowledge. He asks God to do something. Let me do it that way. What did he ask God to do in 22 to 26? Okay, and what had he spoken? To confirm it, to, in other words, to do it or continue to do it? Yeah, to keep a son of David on the throne. And in, and in consequence, he really means himself, right? That God will... Keep a son of David 
on throne. Okay, so these are, I'm going to write this up here just above it so you can see it. This is his prayer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that he's doing it as the king in front of the people. So as a leader of God's people, what is God's highest quality for a leader of God's people? That they would do what? That they would point back to God, that, they, that he would continually... Uh, make sure that the people understand that it's all about God and that he relies on God for leading them, that he is that he is seeking God's favor and protection and wisdom and provision, right? And as long as he's doing that, then what will the people want to do? They'll want to do the same thing and they will also want to follow him, right? Okay, so the, that God will do that. That's 26. Now, 27 to 30? The next segment, he does what? He, he, concerning the subject in general about prayers and supplications, he wants God to do what when people pray? Hear and forgive, right? He knows that they are going to be sinners and that they're going to have need of God hearing them. So hear the prayers. Pray toward this house. And I think it's interesting because for that time in history, the fact that they were praying towards that house was a significant witness in the world, right? Was it not? As the, as the rest of the world was doing, which was what in their worship? Where were they worshiping and to whom? On the high places. And the majority of the people of that time had how many high places that they went to and how many gods? Multitudes. They had, the wa they had one for the leather maker. They had one for the water. They had one for the, the produce of the ground. They had one for, I mean, for giving fruit to the womb, right? And so there was all these different kinds of God worships going on with Israel. What Israel's purpose was, was that they as a nation, even if they weren't at the location of their temple, that they would know in their mind which way is east. That would be hard for me. I know, this, I know there's a sun thing that comes involved, but it's too complicated. <laughs> anyway, but, but <laughs> I know, I can't find my way. Me, me and Celeste, we get lost everywhere. Okay, so they're supposed to then turn toward that place, kneel and pray when they pray to God as a witness that it's that God at that location. Do you see what he's, what he's actually requiring of them? It, 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 we kind of lose a little bit of the idea, I think, or the concept of it and the purpose of it uh, in our day-to-day. -day. But at that time in history, the whole point was that every time a person were, would kneel before God and turn and face towards God's uh, temple at the place which he has chosen. It was an act of submission, it was an act of obedience, and it was an act of witness to the world. Awesome, huh?
Okay, so that's that chapter. Hear the prayers, pray toward this house. How do you think he's doing so far? You think God's going to say, yes, you get all those things? Absolutely. So far, so good, right? Okay. <laughs> In 31 and 32, he says concerning God, what, is, what does he want him to do there? Act and judge towards who? Okay, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Isn't that an amazing thing? In other words, God, you be the one who determines who's right and who's wrong. And you either judge them or you protect them or, or reward them, whichever it is that is being called for. Justify the righteous, right? And bring upon the head of the wicked that which they have reaped, reaping what they sow, basically, right? So he's saying here in heaven, and I'm not going to put all the rest of it because there's a lot in there, right? But just simply he's just saying, God, I want you to hear from heaven. Excuse me. <laughs> oak. I hate the oak. Okay. Here in heaven, and then he wants him to both act and judge, right? And you can expound on that by reading the rest of it to get the details of what it means to act and judge. Correct? But that was the shortest way I could title that one. That one was a tough one because it was just a couple of sentences, but it's like the whole thing had to be written out in order to really get it. All right. Yes. You know, I think that's a really good point, Glenn, because after all, what had God given to Solomon already? Wisdom. And what would be the tendency toward, for, as far as most men are concerned, to have them do when they think they're all that and they have all that wisdom? Rely on your own understanding. And what does God say in Proverbs? Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge me in all your ways, and I shall direct your path, right? So here he says, when you are observing us as a people, we, I want you to both hear in heaven the petitions that we lift up to you in prayer, and I want you to act and judge according to your righteous judgment, right? Okay. 33, uh, no, 33 and 34. Starting in 33 and 34, we see an awful lot of a new word that shows up, I think, right? Uh, the word repent and turn, right? Turn and repent and, of course, sin. So what we're seeing here in his prayer is he, he enters into a section here about confession of sin Uh, repentance. I'm just giving myself a little note here and, pr and then pr praying in response to that. So the w 
turn to you again, when they turn to you again in verse 33, that's the repentance. Um, ooh, I didn't mark it in all these places. We see it in 48, if they turn in 47, if they repent. So he, you see this subject of repentance coming up because it's going to factor in, is it not? What is, what is he making suggestion here in 33 and 34? What does he say what he sees coming for them and that they're going to do? Yeah, first of all, he says when. When they do this, and what is it that he says they're going to be doing? Isn't that amazing? Before it even happens. Actually, has, is this the first time we see a, an allusion to the fact that, that this is going to happen? Do you remember when God first instituted the law to them and he gave them, in De it's in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and he gave them the option of blessings and cursings. He says, if you, if you obey, I'll bless. If you don't, I'll curse. In that list of things concerning cursings, what did he warn them would happen to them if they turned from him? They would go into exile, that they would be defeated by their enemies. They would not be the head, but they would become the tail, right? So we see this already having been stated in scriptures. Isn't it interesting to you that Solomon is fully cognitive of all this? Enough so that he, he puts this into his prayer in this, in this, I wouldn't necessarily call it spontaneous, because certainly he knew it was coming, and he had some time to maybe think on it and ponder on it, but but. Here he is in prayer time, and he is remembering these things which God has said, and he is very articulately ticking off the different points that God has in relationship with Israel. The first one here in 33 and 34 is that when you go into captivity, when you're taken captive by your enemy, and you, you become captive by your enemy because you've done what? because you've sinned, then what is his petition? And that's the only part I'm putting in my title. What is he asking of God? Hear and forgive and bring them back to their land, right? Here, so he starts out here, hear in heaven, act and judge. Hear and forgive, and then he says, and bring, return us to our land. Return us back. To this land. Wow, that's amazing, especially with our hindsight of information that's all occurred now. Okay, 35 and 36, another, another point is brought up, which is what? That there's rain. And so when the heavens are shut up, and why would the heavens be shut up according to 35? Because you sinned. When the heavens are shut up, because you have sinned. So tell me what you think about that today. When you consider the heavens being shut up. When droughts come, who's in control of the rain? God is. That's a, that's a hefty thing to ponder on. So he, then he wants him to do what then when they pray to him? Here in heaven, forgive and send the rain, right? Here from heaven, again. Here and forgive. Send rain. <laughs> and I like the fact that he qualifies it on your land.
Yes. Isn't that, that's a good point, Susan. <laughs> Can you imagine when he's writing this? He's, they're in their captivity, and he's saying, well, if we do what? If we turn to God, if we pray towards this place, bow our knees, submit to his, his way of approaching him, do what he said, which is to turn our face towards Jerusalem, pray towards this place, towards your holy temple. When you do that, God will what? Hear from heaven, he will forgive, and he will do what? Return you back to the land. Wow, that's a good point, Susan. Very nice. Context means everything, doesn't it? Okay, 35, 36, now 37 to 40. I know we're not hanging too long on any of these. We, we got to hurry so I can get to the next part on this. Okay, so again, in this case, it's going to be what? I'm sorry, so what is it that he wants God to, forget, to do? Hear and forgive each man. Okay, so hear and forgive. Act according to each man, to each man's ways. I just did that. That's pretty not self-explanatory, but when you read it, it is, <laughs> right? When you get in there and read the verses. Okay, 41 to 43. He's covering all his bases here, it sure seems like. He's, he's laying out almost every possible situation Israel can get into, and he's asking God to be in the midst of it, right? 41 to 43. But in every one of these, there's a, there's a qualifier of what on the part of the people? That they repent. They recognize their sin. They repent from it. That they turn from their wicked ways, turn back to God. And when they do that, then God will hear, forgive, and act. Okay? You could almost title this whole section, Hear, Forgive, and Act. Okay. 41 to 43. Oh, I love this one. He asks him to hear and act on behalf of on behalf of the foreigner. That's so cool. Isaiah 53 uh, or 56 3 and then verses 6 and 7 also. There's a passage in there that speaks about th this prophetically where God has said that he will, he will hear and forgive and receive into the fold of God's people the foreigner. If the foreigner will do what? Acknowledge God. If they, again, just as Israel has, if they turn to God and, and recognize who God is. You know, in Hebrews it says that you must believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. That is the simplest explanation of the gospel I really I think it's in the whole scripture just simply believe that God is and that he rewards those that love him all right 44 and 45 what is the scenario they're going to get themselves into in time of war right in time of war then what does he want them to do here and act, is it, does it say act in this one here? Here and maintain their, maintain, there you go. Maintain their cause. Or maintain our cause, it says. Okay, and then one last one, which is 46 to 53 in this segment. 
46 to 53. This is again, up here we had actually already seen um, that uh, to me it's a, a type of captivity up here, but this one is slightly different because this one is talking about what? Taking them away to a foreign land. When they sin against you, and then I love this quote, for what? There is no man that, that does not sin. No, not one. Does that sound familiar? And you are angry with them, and you deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away into captivity to the land of the enemy, far off or near. And if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you. This is very interesting because what this is saying is by faith, they are going to pray and confess their sin and wait on God to respond. It may take weeks. It may take years. But they once, because really, if you think about this, if this record was, is written in the middle of the Babylonian captivity, they still have another 30, 35 years of captivity to go. And at this point, this man is recording this for them, and he's reminding them that God said, if you will repent, recognize your sin, then I will forgive you and return you to your land. But I may not do it tomorrow. You may have to serve out your term of sentence that I've imposed upon you. In this case, God imposed 70 years to them, right, to redeem the years that they had not given rest to the land in. So 46 to 53 says when they're in their captivity... If you repent, I'm just putting a little bit more on this one to show you. If you repent, forgive your people, right? Okie dokie. I will do that. We're getting, we're getting almost to the place where we're done with this. Now, there's one last part on this. Now, when you looked at verse, Kay had you actually on day five. She, what we just finished here on this prayer, we did on day three of your homework. Then she reserved the last few verses for day five. My question to you would be, can you see a reason why Kay would have split it right there? And what, how is that last section there in 54 to 66? What do you see that as? Let me give you another hint. Okay, it, he had a prayer, and then what? There you go. C Carrie hit it. Say it again louder. Benediction. It's a benediction. It is just like, do you remember when we did Hebrews, we were saying that as we went through all of Hebrews, at the end then there was, there was an altar call, there was a, a benediction and a doxology and I, they had the whole thing in there right and what we came to see at the end of Hebrews was it was actually a sermon the whole thing it was a sermon so in this uh, passage right here what we're seeing is it's showing us in these this last segment here that he, he basically stands up at the conclusion of his prayer which is equal to a sermon right and now he's concluding it with kind of a compact 
recap of all the major segments or major points. Did you notice it? And he's doing it in a way where he is blessing the people, right? Now, he says in this benediction in 54 to 61, what does he tell the people? What is the benediction? In conclusion, what does he want God to do for the people, his people Israel? Okay, to incline their hearts to himself. And by doing that, is there a so that in there? It seems like there was. Wow, the whole point to what God did. Do you remember how many times we've talked about this? What is the purpose for Israel? Why does God call Israel his special people? What's so special about them, right? The whole purpose for them was that they were to do just what this says. That's right. Reveal God to the world. Draw people to the Lord, right? Yes, it did. You're right. It sure did. And, and in order that, in verse 43, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you as, as do your people Israel, which is kind of funny to say, and that they may know that this house which... I have built is called by your name. So that was the intention of God for Israel in the world, to draw people to, to see him as this good God that he is. And then in 56, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant, now he gives the benediction. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinance, which he commanded to our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. Now, again, that's like um, give us this day our daily bread, right? So that every day we... Re we Focus back to God that we count on God to be the supplier and the, the resource and the, and the protector and the provider that he is to us. And day by day we go back to him. It's not something that you can do it once a week on Sunday morning and you're good for the week. It's every single day when you arise every morning, it's new. That, you know, he says, thy faithful is new every morning. You rise every morning as each day requires right? And when you do that, he says then, may the Lord maintain the cause of his people Israel. What is their cause? Those two big major verses that we just talked about, that they would be a light to the world and draw people into, into faith. So when you say that God maintains their cause, you're saying a whole lot of things. I mean, that has that, that little phrase, maintain your people's cause, the reason, the cause, the purpose, the, the intention of Israel, maintain that so that in the end the whole world will come to faith in you. So maintain their cause. So you're going to, um, I'm going to have to put it over here. Uh, 54 to 61 is may God maintain or may the Lord maintain 
Uh-oh, I'm ringing. <laughs> the cause of his people. Their purpose. I'm going to put purpose on this. So you understand that the cause of his people is the purpose of his people. Okay. Uh, then 62 to 64. They offered sacrifices. And then 65 to 66. Mm -hmm. All Israel celebrated. The feast. Yes. <laughs> okay. But one of the things I noticed is that um, 22, it starts with that Solomon was standing before the altar of the Lord. Yes. And when he finishes, he's prostrate. He's wow, that's cool. I didn't pick up on that one. That's good. So what you have is a beginning and an ending. Something happened in between there, and there's no indication in the text of what that really means. But we can certainly... We can certainly notice that, though, and in our minds, we can figure out probably what happened, right? Considering all that he said here and how he's praying to the Lord and all that emotionally goes on. We have all been there before, been in a, a church sermon or in a ceremony of this kind of a thing, where by the time you start in the beginning, you're all up and singing and clapping and having, by the end of the sermon, you're in tears and you're on the floor or you're on your knees. And your, maybe your fellow brethren are around you and consoling you. Because emotionally, you've tapped in to the creator of the universe, the sovereign over God's people. And positionally, Solomon, in this moment, this is Solomon's glory moment. This is the pinnacle of Solomon's life. And I want you to enjoy it while we're here. <laughs> The, truly, it is, the, it, is the, it is a beautiful example of what life and relationship with God is to be about. And he nailed it on this day. He was, he was he, you're right, he stood with his hands lifted to God, and by the end of it, I love that. I'm going to make a note on that one, and, you know, so I see it because I, I didn't pick up on it. But at the end, then, he is on his knees before the Lord. Yes. Which is exactly what we see here if you think of Hebrew as the plural. He said a lot, but whatever has happened is he's gone from standing in a folded flesh to complete Wow. Is that not what we all want when we come before the Lord? Wouldn't it be f fabulous if every Sunday morning we did that? We started in this moment of just enjoying God and praising him for who he is but by the end of it we have been washed and we have been humbled and we have been brought to a position before God that's appropriate yeah I know that's let's skip that middle part but did you notice that's what it all is all about confession of sin and repentance in here and at the end of it, then there is this glorious moment before the Lord where positionally Solomon has met the mark. He has actually approached God appropriately and with reverence and with a sense of awe and with a, an understanding that he is no one 
but a, a simple servant of God. And he makes that statement in there in a couple of places, this, your servant. And he, so he, he humbles himself in that position. He doesn't say, you're king over Israel. He says, your servant. Awesome. Yes. Wow. Yes. And I thought, and, and I guarantee you, and we didn't get time to do it, but the significance of the imagery of bronze, is it not an instrument of judgment? That he is standing before God in a position of being judged by God, as judged in a good way to be, to, to cut to the quick, to uh, purge sin, to purify and that's what the, I think symbolically the bronze plot platform was all about. All right. Now, now what I want to do is very quickly, we haven't got a lot of time. We want to go through and we want to look at all these, t- these titles that we came up with for First Kings. So we're going to start with chapter 1. Do you remember how, how we titled 1? Just throw, holler it out and we're going to... What did David do? With Solomon? Okay, so he makes Solomon king. He anointed him, however you want to say it. You can use the word anointed in there if you prefer. Okay, um, that was in chapter 1. So that whole storyline is about Solomon and how his brother was going to try to usurp the throne from him and how he had to overcome that through wisdom and through kind of some stealth maneuvering and the help of, of the prophet, right, that came in and gave him help. All right, now in chapter 2 then, what did you see? Okay, so... There you go. David dies and Solomon's kingdom, S-O-L-O, Solomon's kingdom established. Okay, so that's in two. And chapter three. God gives Solomon wisdom. There was so much more in there. Wouldn't it be fun? And I want you to make uh, a little note to yourself on your observation worksheet right here that Solomon loves the Lord because it says it in here, right? Solomon loves the Lord. And then there's the word what? Except, and I do want you to make note of that, that that's found in verse 3. Those are your, those are your uh, scriptures for where you find this. But the reason I want you to do that is because I do think that it set the stage and set the tone for what's coming as we move through this. We're seeing him in so many ways act appropriately, but in so many other ways, not at all, Right. And so we're going to, I think that the fact that right away at the very beginning of the record of Solomon in the book of the Kings, which is about a king, it, he indicates that there's an exception to this, to this relationship that he has with God. So it's a small word. It's mentioned once, but it is profound and it affects 
everything else that you're going to look at from that point forward. Okay, then in uh, four, what did you see? Yeah, he established his government. And once it was established, what did it say about that, that uh, kingdom that he had? They absolutely lacked nothing. Wasn't that an amazing thing about his, his kingdom being set up? When you're thinking about a record about the kings and knowing that Solomon has been made king, he, his kingdom established, that God gave him wisdom for ruling over it, and then in the end Solomon's kingdom or his domain lacked nothing. Okay, and I picked verse 27 on that. So that was in 4. Then in 5, what did we see Solomon do there that was very interesting? Yeah, and he does all this under, under what? What had he done with the king of Tyre? He made a covenant with him. Big boo-boo. <laughs> Solomon covenants with the king of Tyre. What do we know about the king of Tyre? Yeah, he's bad. <laughs> For temple supplies, right? I'm sorry, say it again. And palace and so forth, right. And the palace for all of it in particular. But the emphasis was at this point yet on the temple itself, right? When, it, when he makes that covenant, he talks about building a house for God and so forth. All right, so... <clears throat> So I wonder if that means he was pilfering off the, I don't know, maybe not. Okay, so now in chapter 6, what does Solomon do? Solomon builds the house. Of the Lord. So the, the, in other words, the structure is finished at this point, right? Ugh. Okay, so he finished God's, that's a perfect way to say it. Solomon finishes God's house. Now, in 7, it starts out with a statement where it says Solomon's houses and the temple are finished, right? In chapter 7. But what is the majority of chapter 7 all about? Because I, I tweaked my title on this one. Um, no, 13 to 50 is all about the temple articles and the furnishings of it, right? So he's showing us that once the temple was completed, then the focus of their work for the next period of time was on all the articles and all the furnishings that would go into the temple, right? Finish the house first, then work on the other part. It's kind of like getting the frame up and all the walls up, the drywall up, all the cabinets in. Then afterwards, what do they do? They start coming in with your crown molding and your cabinetry and your sink fixtures and your bathtub. All that comes in after, right? So that's what he did. The structure was built, and now in Chapter 7, you see them, the temple furnishings. are completed. And that was in 13 to 50. You can't really pick just one verse as your key thing. It's the whole thing, basically, right? The temple furnishings is going so much 
no, there were some, but you're talking about the size difference. Do you remember what we looked at in comparing the first tabernacle to the temple itself, how much bigger it was? Does anybody remember how much bigger the temple is than the tabernacle? Like four times bigger, right? Three or four. I think it was four times bigger. The, everything had to be bigger, and almost everything was rebuilt proportionally for the size of the new one. And, by the way, we looked at a reference, and I don't remember where it is, but David had been given instructions by God on all this that for measurements and size. Yeah, I know. I had to remember back on that one, too, because I thought that was really significant and very profound to me because Solomon just didn't decide what he thought was right. He was following a plan that David had given to him. And how had David gotten that plan? God gave it to him. When, when he commended him and said, it's a good thing that it's in your heart to want to build this for me, even though I never requested it. But it's a good thing. And he says, and you, and, but you will not build it. Your son will build it. And then he gives him the details of what, what he's supposed to build and how big and so forth. He gives him instructions. Okay? So now we're up to chapter 7. So now let's go back and let's try to fill in, before we go into 8, which is where we are today, we want to see how this lines up with what we've looked at in Chronicles very quickly. Now, I am just going to pencil this in for you rather than talking you through it because we're real short on time. But I want you to see how things line up once I write it in here. You're going to see it immediately. Okay? The first one is this. Chronicles... Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 1 lines up with 1 Kings chapter 2, where in, in Chronicles our title is that Solomon was established, given wis wisdom, and he amasses silver and gold, and he also imports horses from Egypt. Do you remember that part of the story? All of that together goes right in here. Solomon was established. Um, given wisdom and imported horses, imported horses and amassed gold and silver. Or you could actually put he amassed horses, gold and silver. You could say the whole thing. Now, how does that line up with what you see over here in First Kings? Well, the first one, Solomon was established. What does that line up with? Chapter 2. So let's just, uh, for the sake of, because I can't color it, I'm just going to box it in. It matches with 2. What else does it match with? Uh-huh, 3, where it talks about him being given wisdom. And then what else? Uh-huh, th that's right, in 4. So now what we see is this, this right here matches these first, well, what about chapter 1 of uh, 1 Kings? It's not really in there, is it? That particular mention is not there. Now, why might that be when you're looking at a comparison between a record of the kings and a chronicles of, I'm not quite sure what the chronicles is for yet. I haven't figured that out. I mean, I don't know what that in goal is with chronicles yet. What, what is the kings about? 
the kings. So you have to have a storyline that begins at the beginning of this record as to how that king, who it, the central focus so far in this book has been Solomon, there had to be a storyline that shows you how Solomon got to that position, right? So thus you needed chapter 1. But apparently it was not necessary in Chronicles, and so they skipped it, okay? At, at least in the Second Chronicles record. Maybe it's back in the other one. But for right now, what we know is this. Second Chronicles 1 matches up with 1 Kings chapter 2, 3, and 4. That's huge. I thought that was really cool because when I wrote that title in there and I went over here and looked at this, I went, oh, my gosh, those, those match up with all those. So that gives you now a synoptic observation right here. You can look at these three chapters and this chapter here, and you can compare the information and plug in extra details. Cool? Okay, now let's go to the next one. In chapter 2 of Second Chronicles, what does it say? Yeah, again, you're back to the king of Tyre, aren't you? Solomon negotiating with the king of Tyre to build the temple, right? So let's go down here. Where does that, fall, where does that match? Five. So here we're going to go chapter 2, Solomon negotiated with king of Tyre to build the temple and the house. I'm just not putting that part in here. <laughs> right? Okay, that's two. Now, three, what does he do? He builds the temple. So three lines up with chapter six, right? Solomon begins building temple. It says house of the Lord, but I'm shortening it for simplicity. Seven, the temple furnishings are completed. What do we see in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 4? The, again, the temple work is finished because it's all about them doing those temple furnishings. The temple work is finished. Very cool. So far, so good, right? We're up to chapter 4. Now we need to go to chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles because we did do that one. What was in chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Is what? What about the Ark of the Covenant and the, the utensils? No, okay. Our They are brought to the temple. Okay. And I'm going to put verse 5 for that, of chapter 5. In chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, what does Solomon do there? Okay. And in doing so, he is dedicating that temple, right? Dedicates temple by prayer. I'm going to put on that. Okay, and that's, I put verse 6 for that. And then we see Second Chronicles 7, which you did this week also. What, did, what is it? What happens in 7? God answers. God answers him. That was really cool. He answers his prayer. 
But at the beginning, there's a real significant thing that occurs. What happens in verse 2 of Second Chronicles 7? That's right. So I think that's important, don't you think? We have to get that on our title. So here we go. God's glory fills temple. All right. Uh, Israel is worshiping. You can put that in there, too. If you wanted to, any and sacrifices, right? And sacrifices, they, 15 days, however, whatever you wanted to say. I'm going to put on here these verses. Uh, the glory fills the temple in two. Israel worships in four to eleven, because there's almost three things, that, three events that are going on in this particular chapter, and you have to get them all in here. Uh, this is why sometimes titling in historical books, you get more than one title because it's each event that matters. So you need to get them all in there. Okay, so here we got God appears to Solomon, right? To answer his prayer. And that's in 12 to 22, correct? Okay, now let's go back to for this week in 1 Kings 8 and let's see how we're going to title this. What do we see in 1 Kings 8 that's of significant? The major events that have to go on this title. There really are two of them. I'll just give you a clue on that. The first one is what happens in verse 11. Okay, the glory of, I'm going to shorten this, of God-filled temple, correct? That's one major event that you have to get in there somehow, for sure. And then what happens in 22 to 61? Solomon did what? He prays again, dedicating the temple, right? Solomon dedicates temple by prayer. Okay, so this is chapter 8, correct? Let's put chapter 8 up here. Where do we put it? Yeah, it looks like chapter 8, here could be glory of the Lord, filled temple, And Solomon dedicates temple. So now we have eight, and it matches up with five, six, and seven. So that means your next one for second or for first kings is going to be nine, and it's going to go down below that. Are you kind of seeing the pattern here? You're going to have a hole. But what's going to happen then is you can go, now what we can see by just looking at this is we, when we look at Second Chronicles chapter 1, we need to go to 1 Kings chapter 2, 3, and 4. And when we go to 1 Kings chapter 8, we need to go to Second Chronicles 5, 6, and 7. Is that a cool tool? God gave me that last night only because I decided it was too hard for me to look at my, my at-a-glance chart on two pieces of paper. And so when I put them on the one piece of paper, all of a sudden I was realizing I could actually get a synoptic 
parallel at a glance chart to use. That would be really e efficient for me later. I will never remember this if it's not on a piece of paper like this tucked in my Bible. Do you think I've got that good of a memory? No, no. You'll forget. So if you do yourself a synoptic observation like this, or not a synoptic, a synoptic parallel um, at a glance chart, then you're going to be able to remember which chapters match up with which ones. Isn't that exciting? I was so excited when I got that little tool in my hand. All right. You guys did really well. It